about the Lamb of God. And I think everybody knows when we say the Lamb of God that we're talking about Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God. The Lamb was a very common sin offering in the Old Testament. Three lambs were required for an offering of cleansing for the leper when the priest pronounced him clean, ceremonially clean. And they had daily sacrifices in the morning and in the evening that required a lamb each time. In fact, the morning sacrifice would be at 9 a.m. and the evening sacrifice at 3 p.m. And we do not feel that it was a coincidence that Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning. And that he expired from the cross at 3 p.m. that afternoon. The two very hours that a Lamb of God was offered, the Son of God, the Lamb of God himself, was offered to take away the sin of the world. He was also our Passover, 1 Corinthians 5 and 7. Moses instituted with God's direction, an annual sacrifice, and a Passover lamb, or a Passover goat was acceptable, was offered. Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is our Passover, our Passover lamb. Every lamb that was offered was a type of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. There are many references in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is referred to as a lamb. And in Revelation, it's 28 times. We'd like to notice three references to the lamb this morning. We'd like to look at the work of the lamb, the worth of the lamb, and thirdly, the wrath of the Lamb. What was the work of the Lamb? What was his mission? What did he come to do? Well, John the Baptist introduced to his disciples Jesus in this manner, John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He's not only the Lamb of God, but he had a particular mission. And that mission was to take away the sin of the world. And he uses a singular there, S-I-N. With a lot of sins in the world. And Jesus tasted of death for every one of us and for every sin. 1 Corinthians 3 and 5 speaks about taking away the sins of the world in the plural. But when it uses a singular, it's talking about the sin in a collective sense of every being. Of every transgression and iniquity that's ever been committed, Jesus is the one who came and that was his work. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. When we turn to 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that ye were redeemed not with corruptible things, with silver and gold, from your vain manner of life handed down from your fathers, but 
with precious blood. Without blemish and without spot, even the blood of Christ. And here again, Peter identifies Jesus as that Lamb of God. And the work of the Lamb being the shedding of his blood to redeem mankind from all of his sins. There's quite a contrast in the manner Jesus approached this task, his work. Then that we notice in the world. I'm thinking about <clears throat> Rambo. Rambo sought revenge. He wanted to get even. And I suppose he got his revenge. He certainly caused a lot of havoc in his mission. But Jesus came in a different way. And even though Jesus Christ is one with all power and all authority, and he can make uh, Rambo look like a kindergarten wimp. That wasn't his approach. Jesus came to appeal to the sinner. Not to get revenge upon the wrong and the rebellion that he's done against God. But to bring him back to God. That was the work of the lamb. To die for mankind. I like the song, Love Lifted Me, and that's what we're talking about here. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. 1 John 4 and 9, we love him. Not because he is all that powerful, but because he first loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All of us need our sins forgiven. I mean, there's no exception. Jesus was the only perfect individual who never sinned. But the rest of us have sinned, and because of our sin, we're separated from God. Romans 3 and 23 tells us we all sin and fall short of the glory of God or the approval of God. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it tells us that the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Our iniquities is that which is the barrier from our full fellowship with God and all the blessings that he wants to bestow into our lives in Jesus Christ. It's our sins. But Jesus came to take away those sins because man cannot save himself. We know from 1 John 2 and 2, that Jesus Christ is the righteous who became the propitiation, your version may say expitiation, or maybe the atoning sacrifice, which is really what it means. But not for our sins only, but for the whole world. 
His task was not just confined to God's people. His work was to make an atonement that we might be at one to spell the same word and pronounce it differently, with God. He is our atonement. Some of you may have heard this story. I told it here one time, but I'll tell it again because I like the story. S.D. Gordon was going down the street and he met a little 10-year-old boy and he was a dirty little boy. And he was swinging along like 10-year-old boys, not every 10-year-old boy, but a lot of us boys were dirty. And we'd be swinging along this birdcage. It was all rusty and bent up. And inside were several little birds shivering on the floor of the birdcage. But he stopped the lad and he said, uh, where'd you get the birds? And the boy said, well, I trapped them. And so Gordon said, well, what are you going to do with them? He says, I'm going to play with them. I'm going to have fun with them. He said, well, after a while, you're going to get tired of that. Then what are you going to do with these birds? The little boy said, well, I have some cats at home, and they like birds. I'll just feed them to my cat. Well, the compassionate Gordon said, how much do you want for that birdcage, those birds? The little boy thought for a moment. He said, well, mister, you don't want these birds. They're not any good. They're just plain field birds. They can't even sing. They're ugly. But Gordon insisted, how much? The little boy calculated, squinted one eye, hesitated. And then he said, $2. And to his surprise, Gordon reached into his pocket, pulled out $2 bills, and handed it to the boy, took the bird cage. And in a flash, the boy was disappeared down the alley. Well, then, in a place between the buildings, Gordon opened up the little door, and he gently tapped on the exterior of the cage, trying to encourage those little birds, one at a time, to find their freedom and to fly out that narrow door to safety, to freedom. Well, he took that bird cage with him one Sunday morning to to the congregation where he preached. He told them how he had attained the cage, and then he went on to tell what seemed at first like a different story. How Jesus and Satan had engaged in negotiation. And how Satan had bragged about how he had set a trap and ensnared a whole world full of people. And Jesus asked him, what are you going to do with all those people? He said, I'm going to play with them. I'm going to tease them. I'm going to have fun with them. I'm going to get them to marry and then divorce. I'm going to get them to hit and fight one another. I'm going to teach them how to make bombs and throw them at one another. I'm going to have fun. Jesus said, well, after a while, you're going to get tired of that. You're not going to enjoy playing with them forever. Then what are you going to do with those people? Satan said, well, they're not any good at all. I'm just going to kill them. When I get tired of them, I'll kill them. But Jesus said, what do you want for them? And Satan said, you can't be serious. These people aren't any good at all. 
If I sold them to you, they would just hit you. They'd spit upon you. They'd drive nails into you. They're not any good. You don't want them. But Jesus insisted. How much do you want for them? And Satan said, All your tears and all your blood, that is the price. And Jesus paid that price. He took the cage and he opened the door and he invites all of those entrapped people to come to him, to come out, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. The work of the lamb was to provide salvation was to be a sacrifice that was acceptable to God that no man could offer for himself. What about the worth of the lamb? When we turn to Genesis, uh, uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we're first introduced to the lamb of God in Revelation. We see, <clears throat> let me read verses 9 through 14 about the worth of the lamb. Before I get to verse 9, we want to notice that uh, John saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back, closed, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a, a strong angel proclaiming with a great, uh, great voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And so they're looking for one who is worthy. And no one in the heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look thereon. Just imagine. It wasn't a, a matter of strength. It was a matter of being worthy. And they couldn't find anyone in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, which is a reference to death in the Hadean world. Nobody was worthy to take the book that was sealed and open it up. But Jesus. He was the only one. And he is described as the one who has seven horns, referring to his omnipotence, seven eyes, referring to his infinite wisdom, which are the seven spirits of God, the fullness of the Spirit, sent forth into all the earth. Now verse 9. And they sing a new song, say. And you find this expression throughout both the Old and the New Testament. A new song speaks about a new relationship to God. Brought about because of some deliverance. In chapter 15 and 3, we read about the song of Moses and the Lamb. You can find it originally in Exodus chapter 15. But here is a new song because of a new relationship these people had with the Father. And this is, I think, being compared with that deliverance of God bringing his people out of Egyptian bondage, but now he's bringing them out of redemption of sin. Worthy art thou to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and didst purchase unto God with thy blood. Men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made them to be unto our God a kingdom and priest and they reign upon the earth. And I saw 
And I heard a voice of many angels round about the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a great voice, Worthy, and that's what we're looking at now, Worthy is the Lamb that hath been slain to receive the power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things that are in them heard I saying. There was no one left out that did not recognize the worth of the Lamb and who blended their voices together in praise of him. Unto him that sitteth on the throne and under the Lamb be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The worth of the Lamb. Chapter 4 we read about the one who said, believe in God. Chapter 5, believe also in me. In chapter 4, we're reading about the Creator. In chapter 5, we read about the Redeemer. Chapter 4 describes the power of this Creator. Chapter 5 describes the love and the mercy of this Redeemer. We see the throne which rules the universe, and it's not in Rome. And we see the co-ruler of the universe is an all-sacrificing lover of the saints. The two chapters together, Revelation 4 and 5, together say that worship, glory, and honor shall be given to the Father of the Lamb, once dead, and not to any arrogant and evil earthly ruler. The Christ of all. That's one we're speaking about now. Someone has put it together in this manner. The Christ of all. To the artist, he is the one altogether lovely. To the architect, he is the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, astronomer, he is the son of righteousness. To the baker, he is the living bread. To the banker, he is the hidden treasure. To the biologist, he is the life of men. To the doctor, Christ is the great physician. To the educator, he is the great teacher. To the farmer, he is the sower and the Lord of harvest. To the florist, he is the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valley. To the geologist, he is the Rock of Ages. To the horticulturist, he is the True Vine. To the jeweler, he is the Pearl of Great Price. To the judge, he is the Righteous Judge. To the juror, he is the Faithful Witness. To the lawyer, he is the Great Advocate. To the newspaper man, he is the good news. To the optometrist, he is the light of the eyes. To the philanthropist, he is God's unspeakable gift. To the philosopher, 
He is the wisdom of God. To the preacher, he is the word of God. And to the servant, he is the good master. To the sculptor, he is the living stone. To the statesman, he is the desire of all nations. To the theologian, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. To the toiler, he is the giver of rest. And to the wanderer, he is the way of life. To the shepherd, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And to the Christian, he is the Son of God. The Son of the ever-living and true God, our Savior, our Redeemer, and Lord and King. Because we children of Adam want to be great, Christ became small. Because we are always seeking to climb higher, he stepped down. And because we will not stoop, he humbled himself. And because we want to rule, He came to serve. We're speaking about the worth of the Lamb. He was and is worthy not only of all of the sacrifices and the suffering of the apostles, but he was and is worthy of all of our suffering and sacrifices. The work of the Lamb, the worth of the Lamb, and the wrath of the Lamb. I don't know about you, but to think of the lamb and wrath is just not compatible. I don't think about the animal, the lamb, as as being ferocious. I may think of a lion, a tiger, you know, even dogs can be ferocious. But a lamb? Did you ever know a lamb to be ferocious? To exercise wrath? Well, that's what God says about Jesus. It speaks about his wrath as a lamb. Not as the king of kings and the lord of lords that he is. In chapter 6, let me just read from 12 through 17, the last, well not the last, it's the sixth seal that he's removed from the book. And I saw when he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the whole moon became as blood. And the stars of the heaven fell unto the earth, as a fig tree casteth her unripe figs when she is shaken of a great wind. And the heaven was removed as a scroll, when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth... And the princes and the chief captains and the rich and the strong and every bondman and free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they say to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come 
and who is able to stand. The Lord's not talking about the end of the world. It sounds bad enough. He's talking about the sixth seal. He's talking about the oppression, the judgment that God's going to bring upon those who are oppressing his people, not at the end of the world, that'll come later. But during those first few centuries of the Christian era, this is apocalyptical language. This is the language of the Old Testament prophets that we should all be familiar with. He's expressing his wrath upon the Jewish enemies, upon the Roman enemies. And what will it be at the end of the world? Let me read just a few scriptures somewhere. Let's speak about the wrath of God. This is John speaking. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And he's talking about the wrath of God came in the first century. That's Matthew 3, 7. But by your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's God's righteous judgment. For he will render to every man according to his works. For those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That's Romans 2, 5 through 16. And how ye turned unto God from idols, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven when he raised, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is the wrath of the Lamb. He's also the deliverer of those who will respond to him from that wrath. For if we sin, that was 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. For if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire which shall consume the adversaries. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. One other. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Hebrews 12, 25. Jesus Christ was filled with compassion and concern. But he also spoke often of judgment, of perdition, of hell, of eternal punishment, and other aspects of his wrath. Man needs to understand that God is exceedingly angry with man. Brethren, I hear so often that God uh, hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. That's partially true. God is angry with the impenitent sinners. O Jehovah, rebuke me not in thine anger, 
neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Jehovah, for I am withered away. O Jehovah, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is sore troubled. And thou, O Jehovah, how long? Return, O Jehovah, deliver my soul. Save me for thy loving kindness sake. That's Psalm 6. Let me close by telling us what we need to do with the salvation the Lamb has provided to his work. To his worth, it was acceptable by God. Jesus died to provide our salvation. We need to take it. We are to take it freely, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. We are invited to take it, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Didn't Jesus say, "Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest." We are entreated to take the salvation, Second Corinthians five and twenty-one twenty. We are commanded to take this salvation, First John three twenty-three. We are to compel the unsaved to take this salvation, Luke 14, 23. And men are lost when they will not accept it, John 5 and verse 40. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him to a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns, red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to our town, they simply passed him by. They never hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender and they would not give him pain. They only passed on down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them for they know not what they do. And still it rained, the winter rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against the wall and cried for Calvary. Indifference. 